Welcome to the College Commons Podcast and our acclaimed author series, brought to you by HUC Connect, together with the Jewish Book Council. We'll meet authors recognized by the National Jewish Book Awards and discuss their celebrated books. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, where we're going to have the pleasure of a conversation with Mark Gerson. Mark Gerson is an entrepreneur and philanthropist, as well as the author of books on intellectual history and education. His articles and essays on subjects ranging from Frank Sinatra to the biblical Jonah have been published in the New Republic, Commentary, The Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. He hosts the popular podcast, The Rabbi's Husband, and recently wrote The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. Mark is married to Rabbi Erica Gerson, and we're thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us, and congratulations on your recent book. Thank you, Josh. Great to be here. So let's start off with the telling. It's awfully ambitious, the title itself, uh, Revealing the Meaning of Life. But I want to start slightly smaller so that we can talk in bite-sized chunks and ask you to elaborate on one of the themes from the Haggadah and uh, maybe sharing one of your favorite selections. In the telling, I basically go through the uh, Magid section of the Haggadah, which is the section that basically every Jew is familiar with and every Gentile who's attended seders. These are the, the passages that we come back to year after year. And what I do is I show how the Haggadah is not a holiday program um, or a dinner manual. You know, we've all been to those uh, gala dinners where there's speaker after speaker and we're just kind of going through the list to see how quickly it's going to end before we can get to the food or get out of there. And that's not what the Seder is supposed to be about. It's the opposite. Really, the uh, Haggadah uh, is the book and the Seder is the venue for us to explore the great questions within a Jewish and indeed Torah context. And the Haggadah encourages and allows us to ask the great questions of life at the Jewish New Year, which Pesach really is, to allow us to do an inventory of how we did the previous year, who we are now, and who we might want to be in the coming year, and how we can become that person and that people. The Haggadah lays all that up for us. And so in the telling, what I try to do is to go through these familiar passages and to discuss how each one asks and answers a question that's both profound, deep, and intensely practical and very interesting and can be discussed at the Seder uh, this year or any year. So share with us one of your favorite selections. There are so many, but let's just take one. And I'll pick one that is seemingly prosaic, one that seemingly doesn't shout out. You're about to get one of the great lessons of Judaism, but in fact, it's in there. And this is in the McGee section, like everything in the book. Rabbi Elazar Ben Azaria said, I am like a 70-year-old man. Now, we know from the historical record that he was about 16 or maybe 17 at the time of this great Seder in B'nai Barak. So why would he say, I am like a 70-year-old man? Clearly, he wasn't saying, I'm like a 70-year-old man in my capacity as an athlete. He was saying, I'm like a 70-year-old man in my capacity of wisdom. So normally, if we asked parents or anybody else, how should we act with an adolescent who says, I have the wisdom of a 70 year old? We would say, well, let's educate that child that he shouldn't be so arrogant, and that he should develop some humility, and that in time, hopefully, God willing, he'll develop that wisdom, but he's not there yet. So, why are we not only recording what Rabbi Elazar Ben Azaria said, but celebrating it? Why are we teaching our children to say things like, I am a 70 year old man in my capacity of wisdom? Well, I think the Haggadah which is derivative of the Torah, is enabling us to ask one of the great questions about one of the great concepts, which is what is 
humility. So when we, we know Judaism loves humility because it says about Moses in numbers, Moses was the most humble man ever to live. And he was also the greatest Jew ever to live. So of course we love humility as a, as a concept. This passage is asking us to consider on this great night of Jewish existential confrontation, what is humility? And first we have to come what humility is not. And the great Christian author, C.S. Lewis, said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And therein lies a great Jewish truth in that we know from this passage from Moses. So Moses is the most humble man ever to live. What do we know about Moses? Moses sees a, an Egyptian fighting a Jew, takes matters into his own hands and saves the Jew. Moses sees seven men harassing women by the waters of Midian. What does he do? Takes matters into his own hands, saves the women. God says to Moses at the golden calf, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. Moses said, then blot my name out of your Torah. Moses takes it to the strongest emperor in the world at his time, the Pharaoh. This guy's humble. Well, apparently, because the Bible says he's the most humble man ever to live. So one might think, well, these acts don't seem to be the acts of a humble man, but they must be because the Bible says he's the most humble man ever to live. And indeed he is, because humility in the Jewish context is just what C.S. Lewis said. If we're going to be humble, then what it means is fully acknowledge the gifts that God has given us and sublimate them to the mission that God has also given us. So Moses was obviously fully aware of his many gifts, his physical gifts, his spiritual gifts, his intellectual gifts, his gifts as a leader. But whenever he was given the opportunity, and even when he wasn't, when he sought the opportunity, he always understood those gifts and used them and always used them in service of the greater good, in service, in his case, of leading the people from slavery to being a free people in the promised land under the sovereignty of God. So that's what it means to be humble. So what do we tell our children at the Passover Seder? We tell our children what it means to be humble is to fully acknowledge the gifts that God has given you. We should tell our children false humility is a sin. Because if you're falsely humble, if one denies the gift that God has given him or her, then one cannot contribute that gift to the glory of God and to the betterment of his world. So why are we celebrating the 16-year-old kid saying, I'm like a 70-year-old man? Because God gave him the gift of wisdom. And that doesn't end the conversation. That begins the conversation. He's saying, God gave me the gift of wisdom. Now, what can I do with this to fulfill my mission, to help make a, the world a dwelling place for God, to help make the Jewish people a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? So the lesson for each of us, and particularly the lesson we should teach our children is identify your gifts, acknowledge your gifts, and then think, how can I contribute this gift to the glory of God and to the betterment of his world? All right here from this passage. So I see what you're saying about the spirit of your book being both to seek profundity in the Haggadah, but also to uh, have applicable practical lessons. Exactly. Uh, it's beautifully illustrated by your example. Thank you for that. And I want to point out two themes that we're going to come back to later in the interview. One is the podcast, because you have a podcast episode on humility with Benjamin Watson. And so I want to direct everybody to your podcast, The Rabbi's Husband. But we'll talk a little bit about the podcast in a minute. But you also mentioned C.S. Lewis, of course, who was a deeply, deeply Christian person right. and had a sensitivity and a sensibility that um, really was not particularly Jewish. But you're drawing on uh, shared religious themes, which we'll get back to in a minute as well when we talk about some of your works in the Christian world or partnering with uh, prominent Christian organizations. Moving in that direction for the moment, I'd like to ask you to uh, spend a moment telling us about your really landmark philanthropic commitments to Africa. 
Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I was, uh, it was about 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago when, uh, my uh, closest friend from college, Dr. John Fielder, who was finishing his residency at Johns Hopkins, he called me and he said, as you know, I'm a Christian. And I said, yes, I know you're a Christian. He said, well, I feel called by God to go to Africa and to serve the poor who were then being ravaged by AIDS. He, he didn't say this, but what he effectively said was, I'm going to give up all of the luxuries, and in fact, many of the necessities in the United States to answer my calling to serve what he would have quoted, he did quote uh, from Matthew 25, the least among us. So he went over to Africa in 2002 um, as an AIDS doctor when AIDS was ravaging Africa. And uh, he's never left. And uh, one of the many things I've learned from him is that the greatest humanitarian problem in the world is uh, almost certainly the lack of access to medical care for almost everybody in Africa. In that most African countries uh, have one doctor for every 10 to 50,000 people. That doctor may or may not have had formal training. And of course, if there's one doctor for every 30,000 people, there's not going to be a functioning hospital system. If there is a hospital or a clinic, it's not going to have oxygen. It's not going to have surgical capability. And, and with, without health care, there's a limit to how an individual can thrive and a society can advance. So let's say a woman in Africa needs the C-section. In Africa, only 20% of women who need C-sections get that. At least in the areas where we're very active, in places like Uganda and Burundi and lots of other places, 20%. So what happens to the 80%? They'll have the fistula, the birth injury with devastating long-term consequences. And, and so let's say, let's say that happens to a woman. She might die in childbirth, okay? That's obviously a tragedy in and of itself, but the tragedy compounds because let's think about the children she has at home who are now orphaned. What's going to happen to an orphan child with no resources? What's going to happen to the whole community which depends upon her? For $230, we can give her a C-section. That, that's what we do as, as often as we can. So we believe healthcare is the foundation for all development. Is it Obviously, it saves lives, but it also enables uh, societies to prosper. Uh, because if a society is constantly at risk of its young women dying for lack of a C-section or suffering devastating injuries and being unable to carry on their tasks, the society cannot advance. And so this is what John uh, discovered in the early 2000s was that there were these Christian missionary doctors who were working in environments that often had inconsistent power, inconsistent water, no oxygen for surgeries and other kinds of procedures and uh, limited everything else. And yet they were there at incredible sacrifice to themselves to serve the poor. And they had no consistent source of support because for a variety of sociological reasons, the denominations, the Christian denominations that used to support them had become weaker and poor. So we started in 2010 African Mission Healthcare to partner with Christian missionary doctors at Christian mission hospitals to do three things. One, to provide clinical care for the poor, everything from AIDS care to maternal child care, to surgery, to everything a hospital does. We also do a lot of training because uh, one of our goals, and when I say us, I include all the Christian missionary doctors in us. One of our goals is that the next generation of Africans will have vastly better care than the current generation. So we invest a lot of human and financial resources in training and then infrastructure. Well, for, first and foremost, Kolakavod, congratulations on a, on a remarkable gift and support of really what I'm learning from you now is a really global vision, global within healthcare. I mean, you're looking at all of the angles and uh, it seems really remarkably impactful. 
Before we get to Jewish themes again and circle back to them, I want to pick up on the theme of Christianity in the mind of the Jewish population. In reporting about your gift, um, much was made of the fact that the recipient organization was not merely Christian, but a Christian missionary organization. Looking at you and your professional personality and your podcast and uh, some of the Christian themes which loom large in your work, what does Christian Jewish partnership add to your work or your perspective? It's a very important part of of, of my work. And, and Erica graduated from HUC in 2007. So we're deeply involved with Christian missionary doctors through African Mission Healthcare. In fact, um, one of our great honors is, and this happens several times a year, is when one of the Christian missionary doctors comes back from Africa for a home leave, which they typically do once every five years or so. And when they really come through New York, they come to our home. Now we want them coming to our home rather than going out. It may seem like, what, what does it matter? But they go out to come to your home because we have four kids. And by introducing our kids to these Christian missionary doctors, our children have an opportunity to learn what true greatness in faith is. They learn what it means to devote oneself fully to the stranger, what it means to really love the stranger, which is a Jewish imperative. They're able to see that and to learn that from getting to know these Christian missionary doctors. Um, I'm also very involved with um, Eagle's Wings. Eric and I are very involved with Eagle's Wings. What Eagle's Wings does, it's identified by now thousands of Christian leaders and has brought them to Israel, has educated them about Judaism, has educated them about Israel, has created this incredible community of faith of these really magnificent people, these Christian pastors who are now, um, they developed a deep love of all things Jewish. They love the Jewish state. They love the Jewish religion. They love Jewish customs. And uh, it's all through Eagle's Wings. And I actually teach Torah every Tuesday at noon to um, uh, primarily evangelical pastors put together by Eagle's Wings. So uh, in terms of Jewish-Christian partnership, I think we're living in in rather um, extraordinary times. There are so many examples of this. I mean, uh, we did a partnership with CBN, Christian Broadcast Network. This was 2018. Erica and I met Gordon Robertson, who's the CEO of CBN. And uh, we told Gordon about our work with missionaries. And he said um, he was a missionary too, as a younger man. And uh, in the course of this conversation, he was saying, where he agrees with the Rambam over the Ramban and Rashi. I said, Gordon, like there are a lot of rabbis who, who, who don't have this level of knowledge. And you didn't even, it wasn't like we were coming together to talk about texts. We were coming together just to, to meet. And, uh, but he's just so fired up with the love of all things Jewish. He loves Judaism. He loves the Jewish religion. He said he, he studies the Jewish Bible every day. This is the first time this has ever happened in human history. This flowering of Christian love and Christian friendship for all things Jewish extending from the Jewish state to the Jewish religion, to Jewish teachings, to Jewish holidays. I get emails from Christian broadcasts alerting me to Jewish holidays I'd barely heard of, but calling their Christian audience to celebrate them. I mean, this has never happened before. And so this great friendship, which is flowering and growing in our day, is, uh, is just incredible to behold and to participate in. I mean, when my book, The Telling, came out in March, the book tour was all on Zoom, which was great because it meant that I could do five to seven groups a day. And they were geographically diverse. More than half of them are Christian. A lot of church groups, some non-church groups, but a lot of church groups, different churches from around the world, from Kenya to California, who wanted to learn about the Haggadah, about the Seder, about the Exodus story. And when I say learn, I mean learn in a spirit of love. I mean, if we could have told our grandparents that I would be discussing the Seder and the Torah and Judaism in general with Christians who loved 
Judaism, the Seder, Torah, and the Jewish state as much as they did, it would have been inconceivable. But it's true. It's happening in our day. I want to follow up on your grandparents, not just your grandparents, but people today as well. I think Mm -hmm. you know many, many Jews have deeply ambivalent or downright negative feelings about Christian organizations. I'm not speaking about individual relationships with Christians. Right. I mean about Christian organizations and specifically Christian missionizing. I'd like to ask you how you understand Jewish reservations about Christianity's public expressions, or shall we say expressions in the public square, and how you respond to those reservations. Yeah, I mean, first, I would say that um, if most Jews had the relationships that we had, or even just could come over to our apartment on so many evenings and meet some of the Christians that come through, minds might change. We work with Christian missionary doctors all the time. And I've asked so many of these doctors, what does it mean to be a missionary in in your world? Because you define yourself as a missionary. And they said, well, it means that I am on a mission to live as Jesus would live if he were in my circumstance today. And therefore, I'm called to go serve in Africa. Therefore, I'm on a mission. And then I remember I was in Tanzania and I asked um, this wonderful doctor who then had been serving for a little over 30 years in Tanzania. And I said, I've been with you for two days and I haven't heard anything um, from you or seen anything from you that one would typically associate with missionary. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you didn't talk about converting anybody. And he said, oh, those conversations only come up in one limited circumstance. I said, what's that? He said, they only come up when someone says to you, why do you care so much? And in other words, in his context, when people say you could be anywhere, but you're here, why do you care so much? Why do you have so much love? He said, then I can talk to them about those kinds of things. But that doesn't happen that often. But God willing, in my opinion, it would happen more often because these people, they do care so much and they do offer so much and they have so much to share. But I think what the reservation about Christian missionaries, at least missionary doctors and uh, the devout Christianities that you talked about that some Jews have. I'll just describe what we've seen from so much personal experience and so many relationships with these Christians is. They, they love Judaism. They love Jews. There's just, they're fired up with this love of all things Jewish, and they always refer to the root and the branch. What they would say is, you're the root, we're the branch. In order to understand who we really are, we have to understand our roots, and therefore, can we learn together? I mean, that's why Eagle's Wings has me, as a devout Jew, teach Torah in an entirely Jewish context, of course, to evangelical pastors every Tuesday. It's because these Christians want to understand the roots of their Jewish faith. And uh, and of course, you know, there are I I was reading the Jerusalem Post the other day. There are some horrible examples of people who were served as imposters of rabbis to convert people, which the Christians that I know would condemn every bit as much as we would. And our Christian friends and we often talk about the notion of being best friends. Best friends can be separate. We all agree. our, Our Christian friends and Eric and me, we agree that. Jews should be great Jews. Christians should be great Christians. And we can be great friends without becoming each other in that we can each approach God, understand God, develop a relationship with God within our different faith systems and become best friends in the process, but not mixing the two. The College Commons podcast is proud to be part of HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. HUC Connect features four programs, webinars, live conversations with social and cultural influencers 
on topics of civil society, arts and culture, religion, and redefining allyship. Community Connect, ready-made lesson plans for synagogue and community learning. The Masterclass, live sessions of Judaica with HUC faculty exclusively for our alumni. Enroll soon because seats are limited. And of course, the College Commons Podcast, in-depth conversations with Judaism's leading thinkers. For more information about HUC Connect and all it has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect. And now, back to our program. You host a podcast called The Rabbi's Husband, uh, in which you discuss many things, but largely biblical and spiritual themes with rabbis and Christian leaders. And I want to ask what the podcast uh, has meant to you in your own personal development. It seems like a lot of these themes have really shaped shaped your life. You know, I, I, I study the, the Torah uh, every day. And then I, in the course of my study and discussing the Bible with lots of people, I, I realized just how many people have a deep love for the Bible or certainly one part of the Bible that's especially meaningful to them. And these are Jews and Christians. And uh, so I started the podcast, The Rabbi's Husband, where I have guests who have included everybody from congressmen and senators and business leaders and doctors and humanitarians and athletes and all kinds of people to uh, discuss the uh, biblical passage that's uh, most meaningful to them. And so the, the guests on The Rabbi's Husband will just uh, tell me in advance what passage they want to discuss. Anything from what uh, we call the Hebrew Bible and the Christians call the Old Testament's good. And we discussed it for about uh, 30 to 45 minutes. And it's been really enjoyable just sharing uh, my love of the Bible with others who love the Bible and those who, who want to listen and learn. I'd like to close the interview by returning to your new book, The Telling, and ask you what surprised you in researching the Haggadah, which otherwise is a very familiar text for us. What did you walk away from? with as a gift, a, a new little nugget of learning? Well, I, I think it's, you, the word you use is so precisely right, familiar, because there's a problem with familiarity. When something's familiar, it ceases to be special all too often. And it, Judaism is, is in large parts a, a rebellion against the familiar and wants to keep things that are distinct as special so that we continue to appreciate them. And I think we see that manifested with the Haggadah and that so many people just every year, whether you have one or two seders, just open it up, read, read through it, and don't realize that what they're holding in their hands is what I call in the book, the greatest hits of Jewish thought. And it's really the a distilled compilation of Jewish practical wisdom that's going to help them lead a happier, better, and more meaningful life in the year to come. So the greatest discovery in the process of my study was just that the Haggadah is actually the greatest book ever written. Number one, written by a person. Let's say the Torah was not written by a person but was at least divinely inspired. The Haggadah was certainly written by a person, in fact, people, and therefore it is the greatest book ever written. And why is it? Because it basically distills the Torah to help us live a happier and better life in the new year. Because Pesach is the original and authentic Jewish new year, not Rosh Hashanah. Pesach is the the real Jewish new year. And I can interrupt. I want to, I want to share with the listeners uh, what you're referring to. The fact that we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the new year in the month of Tishrei, 
is in fact the seventh month of the year. Tishrei right. is not is not the first year of the month. The first year of the month is in the spring, and it is the month of Nisan, the miraculous month, the month of Passover. And we have four New Years in the course of the Jewish year, one of them being Rosh Hashanah, but another one of them being Nisan and Pesach. So I want to clarify for everyone exactly. what, what you mean when you talk about the it being the real New Year. It is certainly one of the real Jewish it's the, year. It's the, it's the biblically authentic New Year. You can only un- we can only understand the Haggadah and Pesach in the context of a new year, because how do we feel in the spring? As you said, Pesach has to occur in the spring. We orient the entire Jewish calendar, including leap months, seven out of every 17 years. So that Pesach occurs in the spring because the spring is the season. When we all feel renewed, rejuvenated. We're literally going outside again. It's the stealing of newness because it's the new year. That's why we have the new year at that time. Indeed. Indeed. And, and the Haggadah is there to help us do just what we do at our January 1st New Year. It's we make commitments, we make New Year's resolutions, and we do so with the help of the Torah, which is distilled into the Haggadah. So the greatest thing to have learned about the Haggadah is that it is, in fact, the greatest book ever written in the sense that it's also the most practical book ever written. It's the first and best ever self-help book. So my attempt in the telling is to show people that this is a treasure they're holding in their hands and it can help them to live the kinds of life they want to live and to be the kinds of people they want to be. And to add that the telling is the best translation of the word Haggadah that there ever was. It's exactly right. It, it right. means the telling. That's what it's all about. That's why you chose the section of the Haggadah, exactly. which is the telling itself, the Magid. So uh, altogether, beautifully put together, packaged, and and uh, thank you for the lessons and the insights. And thank you especially for the time and the pleasure of your company. It's been a great Oh, class. thank you. What a, what a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much, Josh. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash huc connect.